Hello, church family. Our scripture reading begins in Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothes, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears those words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord, and I'm thankful for us to be able to dive into it together today. So let's just acknowledge a few things uh, from the beginning. First, Daylight Savings Time. It is good to see you here at 8 a.m. I'm impressed. Uh, it's encouraging. Uh, so thank you for making it up and out this morning. 
Uh, Second thing to acknowledge, we just read a whole chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And so I hope you've cleared your schedules for the rest of the morning as we dive into chapter 7 together. No, uh, we uh, are excited. Next week we're going to be celebrating Neighbors and Nations and actually we'll have a special guest speaker. Uh, He'll be a part of that, so we won't be in the Gospel of Matthew next week. And so uh, you will continue on the reading plan in Matthew 7 this week and next week, but this is the week we have to kind of give an overview to it, so that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, And then the last thing, I'm so thankful for our team. I'm so thankful for uh, the hymns and songs that we've been led in this morning. And we are going to continue and worship now through the Word and then respond through the Lord's Supper. And so as we are walking through this text, I just want to encourage you just to prepare your heart uh, to receive and respond to the goodness and mercy that we find in Jesus Christ expressed through the gospel. So those are just some setups, and I hope you've uh, just enjoyed uh, this season of being able to go through the gospel of Matthew. It's kind of sad as we're coming to an end on the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is seven or eight weeks in where we've kind of concentrated on this sermon from the king. Uh, And as we begin to wrap it up and continue on through the gospel of Matthew, I I pray that these truths and realities that we've been confronted with and wrestled with uh, aren't just something that we kind of entertain in our mind, but are really changing our lives. And as we come now into Matthew 7 this morning, Jesus again begins to confront the way that we see life and the way we see the kingdom of heaven, the way we see living out the gospel. And so we're going to dive right in. How many of you have ever had something in your life that you were certain for sure was true or right, or you were convinced by this thing, and then later on you found out you were wrong? Anybody in the room willing to admit it? So yeah, I think we we all have. And I was just thinking about this this weekend. There's so many examples of this in my own life. I can remember growing up, I was convinced that of all the fast food options available to me, the one at the bottom of the list by far was Chick-fil-A. I had to repent. Like that was childish. When I was a child, I thought like a child. When I grew up, I became like a man and realized, no, like this, this is uh, as good as it gets when it comes to fast food. Even last week as we were here and uh, I got to be a part of our worship team and one of the people on our team, Lainey, was on the team but then on a video. And as long as I've known Lainey, I've always been sure her name was pronounced Fallon and always pronounced her name Fallon. Then on the video, she pronounced it's Phelan. It's like, oh man, Lainey, I have to repent. I was sure I had it right. I've not been having it right this whole time. So if you're watching this or here, Lainey, I'm sorry. Uh, There's nowhere else this is more true than in marriage. When I married my wife, I realized there were a lot of things that I was convinced about that I was wrong in. Guys, I know this is early, but I'm trying to set you up to get a win this morning. This is a good place to amen, right? To step in, yes. Uh, And I could go through so many examples. One of those is I was convinced we were looking at apartments one day that a dishwasher wasn't a big deal. For the next couple years, I washed more dishes than I would ever like to wash in my lifetime. There were so many things that I was convinced I was right and I knew and I understood. And then when I got into it, I realized, man, I've not been seeing this rightly. And as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again and again and again confronts the way in which we view worship, the way we view God, the way we view righteousness, the way we view the kingdom, the way we view living out. And again and again and again, we've been exposed to this reality that we, on our own, do not see things rightly, that our vision is blurred and distorted by our pride, by our sin. 
As we made the shift from chapter 5 into chapter 6, we talked about how that's true in worship. We talked about how we, instead of worshiping God rightly, we end up living for the praise and approval of man. We, we turn it back to us instead of to God. Last week we were challenged that we don't pursue rightly. That our pursuit of God is often broken. And a need to turn our hearts back to Jesus being our treasure in all things. And, and this morning, Jesus again begins to turn uh, our understanding as we go into chapter 7 to say the way that we see others and the way we see God's purposes are often wrong. The way we pursue our fellow brother or sister in Christ and perceive them and God's purposes for them and us are often wrong and distorted and broken and we need the truth to draw us back in. So our big truth this morning is the same one that we've been chasing over the last uh, two weeks. It's, it's this, children of God, seek the Father's kingdom and righteousness first and foremost. That those who understand their standing before God, not based on their own righteousness, but God's himself, they are adopted into the family of God. And in this text, Jesus begins to say, address God as Father. It's showing the intimacy and the relationship and how we are to respond to him. And when we begin to see him not just as a distant deity out there somewhere, but a present and perfect father who, who cares about his children. It shifts the way that we prioritize our lives. And so out of that, and last week Pastor Daniel just did an incredible job unpacking this text, just saying that we are called to seek, we are called to pursue. It's active. God's kingdom first. It's the first thing we go after, but it's the thing we chase foremost. His kingdom, his righteousness. And now in chapter 7, Jesus calls us to that pursuit again, but he frames it in the context of our relationship with others and then our path and our pursuit of God. And so what I want to do this morning is just walk through this text and try to unpack some big ideas that Jesus unpacks for us. But as we do, I just want to encourage you and challenge you uh, to be honest and confront, even in your own heart this morning, what are some areas where you might be seeing the seeking of the kingdom of God, where you might be seeing your pursuit of God wrongly, your pursuit of others wrongly? Maybe it's gotten tainted uh, just in your own heart and in your own mind. In chapter 7, I'm so thankful to be able to teach this passage. This chapter in Matthew is one of the most well-known. Like people who aren't even Christians quote Matthew chapter 7, the golden rule and do not judge and these, these phrases and these ideas. But not only is it one of the most known passages in Scripture, Matthew 7 is one of the most misinterpreted and misquoted passages in Scripture. That the way in which we see these statements by Jesus are often twisted and distorted. And so this morning what my prayer is for you and my prayer is for me is that as we go through this text, God will begin to open our eyes to see the truth of what we're called to do and how we're called to live, and God would change us. So I just want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit would do that again. Would you just pray with me in this moment? Father, we, we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would move through your word to open our eyes, to transform our lives, that we might live for your will, delight in your way, and live for the glory of your name. Please do that here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's dive right in. First, 
Uh, the big question this morning that shapes our big ideas is this. What does it look like for God's children to seek his kingdom first, seek his kingdom foremost? What does that look like? And this is kind of a continuation of what we've been walking through this past week. So first big idea is this. Pursue the king's judgment. Children of God are called to pursue the king's judgment. Would you read with me in verse 1? Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, the plank, the the two-by-four that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log, a tree sticking out of your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log in your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's eye. I. So judge not. Again, this is one of the most famous passages in Scripture. We quote this a lot. This has been quoted to us a lot. And often the way in which it's been perceived is probably perceived wrongly. So here's what I want to do. I just want to give you three realities from these verses just really quickly. The first reality that we see in this text is this. God alone judges the heart. God alone judges the heart. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, judge not lest you be judged. He's not saying don't be concerning or don't use wisdom. What he's saying is do not pronounce judgment over a brother or sister. Do not condemn them in the sight of God. He's talking about a judicial legal standing before God that a person has. So none of us should raise ourselves up to say this person is a child of God or this person is not. We can't see the human soul. To pronounce is a declaration over someone's heart. It assumes a posture of authority over someone else. And so this is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about judgment. It is this without mercy and without kindness and without gentleness and without love. It is a pronouncement over someone of their standing before God. That that's not our position. That's not what God has called us to do. Judge not. Elsewhere in Scripture, we know that Jesus isn't talking about discernment here because we are called to use wisdom. We are called to use discernment. And a few verses later, there'll be an example of this. Another example is John 7, 24, where Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we're not called not to use judgment. It's just how we use judgment. And the manner that Jesus is speaking to is setting someone over someone else. So what is the lie in this reality? Here's the lie. That I can withhold forgiveness from an individual and pronounce judgment on them because of the way they treated me. That's the lie of this passage is that I can cast judgment, I can withhold forgiveness, I don't have to pursue mercy and righteousness or forgiveness in someone else's life. And the truth is we judge others with the judgment we want to receive. What is the mercy, what is the judgment we want to receive? It's mercy, it's grace, it's forgiveness, it's compassion. And so in our dealings with other people and conflict that's there, we come to them the way that God, we want God to come to us. This command, judge not, should be found within the context of the Lord's Prayer, which comes just a few verses earlier in Matthew 6, when he says, forgive us our debts. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither your Father will forgive 
you. And this is the warning. If we are to be unforgiving and withhold forgiveness, that is coming back to us. People who have been forgiven much should forgive much. Those who have received mercy should show mercy. And this is what Jesus is calling out. And if you want to do more study on this, Romans chapter 14 is a great chapter to study and unpack what Jesus is going after. And in that text, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or of a sister. So we're not setting ourselves up over someone else and pronouncing their standing before God, but instead we are called to show mercy and grace and kindness as we use discernment in the result of others' lives. And the result that Jesus says is those who withhold mercy will have mercy withheld from them. Friends, are we extending mercy to those who wrong us? Are we extending forgiveness to those who've wronged us? This is what Jesus is calling his audience to. So one reality from this text is that God alone judges the heart. Here's the second reality. Our judgment, our discernment in and of itself is distorted. Our judgment in and of itself is distorted. This is what Jesus says. And I want you to think about verse 3. This has been so convicting to me. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Listen to what he says. But you do not notice the tree that is sticking out of your own eye. That's an incredible question that we should wrestle with. Why are we so quick? And, and again, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. I'm so quick to see the wrongs and the distortions in other people, but so slow to recognize them in myself. And Jesus uses this illustration. It's like someone having a speck, a little tiny splinter in their eye that you can clearly see. But at the same time, you've got a two by four, a tree, a log. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter protruding from your eye. Thought about bringing a two by four in, but I figured I'd probably break something. It wouldn't be helpful. But you can imagine a log sticking out of your eye. Well, one, you're not going to see clearly when there's a log in your eye. But two, when you go to take the speck out of someone else's eye, guess what that log is going to do to them? It's going to cause more damage and harm than it is help. And so when we don't see ourselves rightly, we wound other people. We think we're doing a good thing but we're actually causing more harm and we are deceived in our hearts. So this is the lie for us. Here's the lie. I am naturally aware of my brokenness and blind spots. That is a lie. You and I on our own are not naturally aware of our brokenness and blind spots. The truth is this. We are constantly blinded by our sin and pride. And we are constantly in need of repentance. We are constantly in need of repentance. We are constantly in need to be aware of our sin and of our brokenness. And constantly coming back to the word and the preaching of the word and to the community. So that we can see rightly. So we can look into the mirror of the truth of God's word. And that we can repent, turn, confess our sin. And he gives this example again of the speck and 
of the log. And what Jesus says is don't be a hypocrite. Don't go after the speck while you've still got the log. No, deal with the log first. Get the tree out of your own eye so that you can help your brother or sister. I think one of the most clear examples of this, again, in your own study, if you want to go, if you're taking notes, 2 Samuel 12. And this is the story of Nathan, the prophet, confronting King David. And he tells David about this story, about this sheep, and about how this man, this rich man with all these flocks, steals this poor man's one precious lamb and kills it, and he feeds it to other people. And David, outraged, says, where is this man? I'm going to destroy him. And Nathan says, you are the man. Sin is in your house. Sin is in your heart. The log is in your eye. You can't see it. Brothers and sisters, this morning, you and I, we are the man. We are the woman. There is pride and brokenness in our own eyes, in our own hearts. And if we are not regularly repenting and confessing and holding our lives under the truth of the word, we will walk around with the tree in our eye, smashing everyone we come in contact with. Jesus is saying, deal with your heart first. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one says, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we had an accurate opinion of ourselves and were to come under the word of truth, we would not be in need of judgment from others because we would be dealing with that before God. Which leads to a third reality that we see in this text. And this is incredibly important. And I don't want you to miss this. So lean into this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Third, in a posture of humility, we are called to lovingly admonish and correct others. In a posture of humility, we are called, we are commanded to lovingly admonish or correct others. Others, look at what Jesus says in verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's Jesus saying? He's saying it's not that we don't go after the speck in our brother's and sister's eye. It's just first we deal with the log in our eye. So what is the lie? Here's the lie, and this is a major lie in church culture for us. It's wrong for me to correct other believers. Who am I to judge or correct another believer? That's a lie. What is the truth? Here's the truth. Loving correction and humility and gentleness should be a normal part of the Christian life. Loving correction and humility and gentleness should be a normal part of the Christian life. It should be a normal part of your pursuit, and it should be a normal part of the pursuit of others in your life. And I think this is one of the lies that's killing churches from the inside out because we feel like we are unwilling or unable to speak truth into one another's lives when Scripture tells us to do the opposite. We are called to speak truth into each other's lives. We should deal with our log, but then we should, after that, deal with the speck. We've bought into the lie that correction and conflict and confrontation in the church is unloving. And the opposite of truth, correction, conflict, confrontation is an act of love when it's done out of a pursuit of God. Judge not does not mean that we're not to question one another when we see things that are out of step with the Spirit. 
should shape our posture as we lovingly pursue others. And let me just give you a few examples of this. One is the Lord's Supper, which we're going to get to partake in in a few moments. It's an opportunity for us to rightly examine ourselves. But it's also an opportunity for us to pursue one another before we come before the table. It's something given by God to us to get the log out of our eye, but to also pursue a brother or sister. And there's examples all throughout Scripture. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and, see this next word, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but listen to this, be patient with them all. This should be our posture Ephesians 4.15, we are called to speak the truth. But how do we speak it? In love. So Jesus is calling us to view judgment through a different lens. We are not withholding mercy. We are not withholding gentleness. We are not withholding grace from those who have wronged us. But we are, after we have accurately assessed our own self-deception and we have repented of it, we lovingly pursue one another. Which leads to the second big idea. second big idea is this. Treasure the king's message. Treasure the king's message. Verse 6. Do not give the dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. What in the world does that mean? Okay, I don't know about you, but reading this passage this week, I had to stop and pause and say, what is going on here? Dogs and pigs, holy things and pearls. What's going on? So when we interact with a passage that is unclear to us, the way we look at that passage is within its context, the context of the message, the context of the book, and we let clear passages explain and interpret less clear passages. So what's happening here is when he says, do not, this is a command, it's an imperative, it's given to Jesus' disciples, so it's given to us, we need to lean into it. He says, do not put holy things or pearls, and when he says holy things and pearls, it's a picture, it's an analogy, and he's talking about the message of the kingdom. Matthew 4, Jesus went preaching the message of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel. What is the Sermon on the Mount? It is the message of the kingdom. So when he's talking about holy things and pearls, he's talking about this priceless message, the message of the gospel that has been given to us. And he's saying, don't give it to dogs and pigs. In this day, dogs are not like little fluffy that sits in your home. They were mean, and you stayed away from them, and they were defiled, and pigs still are mean. And for those of you who like, want to have a pig in the house, please don't do that. It's a terrible idea. They, you know, bacon is good. Leave it where it needs to be, that kind of thing. But he's saying, stay, you would not take pearls, precious things, and give them to a pig. Why? He can't appreciate it. Not only can he not appreciate it, he's going to attack you when you give him this thing. So what's the point of the message? The point of the message is this. We are called to treasure the message of the gospel, the kingdom. And as we treasure the message of the kingdom, we are called, and this feels counterintuitive to us, we are called to not continue to give that message to those who repeatedly and aggressively reject and dishonor it. The message of the gospel is a treasure. And he's saying we should treasure it. Here's the lie. 
Again, I want you to catch the subtleties here. Here's the lie. Listen to this. Everyone deserves to hear the message of the gospel and the kingdom. Everyone deserves to hear the message of the gospel and the kingdom. What's wrong with that statement? None of us deserve it. None of us deserve the gospel. In fact, we all deserve the opposite. So here's the truth. No one deserves the gospel. It's a treasure that comes to us by grace alone. And it should be treated like a treasure. And again, this sounds counterintuitive because we are called to share the gospel message. And we are called to share the gospel with all people, even those who don't understand it, even those who would reject it. We are called to take it to them. But as we take it to people, if there are individuals who repeatedly, aggressively reject the message and denounce the message and do not treat it as precious and holy, he's saying, take the message and move on. They are not treating it with the value and worth that it is worthy of. In our judgment, in our discernment, we should be discerning and treat the gospel like a treasure in a field. And this is the way Jesus will describe it in Matthew 13, that it's like a treasure in the field, that you should sell everything you have to get it. It's like a pearl of great price. You should sell everything you have to want it. We should treasure the gospel. So friends, here's a point of application. Do you and I treasure the gospel? Is it priceless to us? Is it valuable to us? Does it offend us when others denounce it or ignore it? Or twist it. It should. And in case you're wondering, Paul, are you being too harsh? That, that doesn't sound loving. That doesn't sound, we're about to go into neighbors and nations where we share the gospel. Now you're saying that there are contexts when we should withhold it. Let me give you some other examples from Scripture. Matthew 10, 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Acts 13, 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. You're not treating this message as valuable. You've heard the truth. You've rejected the truth. We are moving on. Titus 3, 10 through 11, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, for such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So for those in our midst who hear the truth and they reject the truth again and again and again and again, we value it enough that we move on to those who will hear it. We should be discerning in our judgment. Which leads to the third big idea. We are called to seek the king's heart. Seek the king's heart. Again, one of the most familiar passages in Scripture, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one that knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or ask for a fish, and he will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil. And if you've ever wondered if Jesus believes in total depravity, here's our answer. If you then who are evil, broken, sinful, wicked, on your own, apart from me, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So what are we 
called to do. We're called to seek the king's heart. Here's the lie, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'll I'll be quick here. The lie is this. Prayer is about getting things from God. Prayer exists to get something from God. But here is the truth this morning. Prayer is about aligning our hearts with God's heart. Prayer is about not getting something from God, but aligning our heart with Him. God is the goal of prayer. The reason reason we pray is for intimacy and relationship and pursuit of God and to align our lives with Him. And so Jesus says, because He's your Father and because He loves you, don't just ask, but in the original language, it's, it's a present tense. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Seek. Ask. Knock. Seek the Father's will. Pursue the Father's presence. Not for Him to uh, bend to what you want, but so that your life can bend to His purposes. And as you seek, and as you ask, and as you knock, the Father will respond to you. Why? Because He loves you. And He uses this example. He's saying, what dad on earth, if his, if his child came to Him and said, Dad, I'm hungry, can I have a snack? Say, sure, and give him a rock. Or, hey, Dad, can I, can I have a hamburger? Sure, and throw a rattlesnake in his face. We'd say that's bad parenting, right? Like that, there's, there's questions that are there. And Jesus is saying, if you who are broken, you who are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, guess what? God is a perfect holy father. And he is going to give you exactly what you need when you seek him. But here's, here's the deal. A lot of times what we think we need and what God knows we need is not the same thing. And so as we pray, we come to him seeking him, but we come to him asking for his presence, asking for his kingdom come, his will to be done. And guess what? God will answer that prayer. That's good news to us. We sang about that this morning. God is the perfect father. So what are the things that God will give his children when we ask? Well, they're the things of the kingdom that we've been talking about from the Sermon on the Mount. So when you ask, when you seek, when you knock, what will God give you? A heart of forgiveness, a heart of meekness, humility, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a willingness to face persecution, a generous heart, sacrificial heart, kingdom-focused, perseverance, righteousness. These are the gifts that God gives his children. Not just a better home, more security in the bank account, a life free from illness and disease. No, God loves you so much more than that. He wants to change your heart. Those who seek the heart of the king, the king bends to shift their heart to his. He's a good father. Are we people of desperate and persistent prayer who come before the, our king, our father? I have a few, these are just some of my favorite quotes on prayer. Prayer should be like breathing for a child of God. It's not this momentary thing. It's, it's a consistent and constant interaction. One cannot be a truly praying man and yet be poor in spiritual things going to be rich in the kingdom of heaven begin to pray and i love this quote by 
John Piper, he says, a prayerless Christian is like a bus driver trying alone to push his bus out of a rut because he doesn't know that Clark Kent is sitting on board. How often is that true of our lives? Joseph Scriven, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Are we a praying people? May we seek the king's heart. Fourth big idea is this. We are called to serve the king's image bearers selflessly. Serve the king's image bearers selflessly. Verse 12, the golden rule, the one that so many of us have heard all of our lives. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What's the lie? Here's the lie. This, is, this golden rule is a helpful life motto. No, it's so much more than that. The truth is this command describes a life of exceeding righteousness lived before God. So we've been talking about how God demands an exceeding kind of righteousness. This is what that looks like when it's lived out, that we would love others the way that we would want to be loved that we would do to others the way that we would want to be treated. He says, in whatever, he's talking about in everything you do, in your relationships with other people, treat them, act with them, interact with them the way that you would want them to do to you. Not in response to what they've done. So not when they do something kind to me, I do something kind back. Not to get something from them, so I'm going to love them the way I want to be loved, so they will love me that way back. No, this, this is so important. Instead, we love others the way we would want to be loved. We treat others the way we would want to be treated. We do to others as they would do to us. Why? In light of God's goodness to us. Because God is the good Father to us. We are willing to love others the way we would want to be loved. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven begins to break in on earth. When people begin to actually live this way out of a pursuit of God, it looks like heaven. What would it look like for your life, for your family, for our church, if we began to do to others as we would want them to do to us? What kind of testimony would it be to a watching world? This is what a life of exceeding righteousness lived out looks like. Why? This is important. Because this kind of life is impossible apart from God. We will never do this unless God is the one who's fueling that in us. But may we ask, seek, knock that he would change the way that we interact with others. Which leads to a last big idea this morning, which will lead us into a time of response. Last big idea is this. We are called to follow the king's path. Follow the king's path. Verses 13 through 27, through the end of the chapter, Jesus begins to lay out sets of two. He, he begins to compare and contrast. And this is the lie that Jesus wants to expose, and this is important for us this morning. Here's the lie. I can live my life the way I want and follow Jesus. I can live for my life 
and I can follow Jesus. And friends, the truth is this. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, they must lay down their life. Whoever seeks to follow me, whoever seeks his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. So Jesus gives four examples. He says there are two paths. One is easy and wide and many find it. But one is narrow and difficult. And very few find that path. There are two types of fruit. One is a healthy kind of fruit that produces kingdom, gospel, life. And there is a diseased kind of fruit that lives out the flesh. A life will be known by its fruit, what is lived out. And then he gives another example. He gives two pronouncements. One pronouncement is enter into the kingdom of heaven. Those who obey the will and the word of God. But then he gives this incredibly scary statement that there will be many at the end day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Then he closes his sermon by talking about two foundations. One that's built on the rock and one that is built on the sand. And the storm comes on both houses. This is important. Building your life on the rock of Jesus does not keep you from the storm. The storm comes on both foundations. But one stands and one falls. Only those who build their life on the rock, the foundation of Jesus Christ, will weather the storms. And in these examples, Jesus is calling us to recognize a few things. First is this. Jesus separates every human, and this is so hard in our culture, but he separates every human that's ever lived into two categories. Those who choose the narrow, hard, difficult path of laying down their life and follow Jesus and those who don't. Jesus declares, secondly, that few are actually true children of God. Third, Jesus declares there are many who actually think they're children of God who really aren't. That should cause us to do some inward meditation and evaluation. And lastly, Jesus establishes the reality that there's only one foundation that can support the weight of your soul and your life. And that foundation is him. Which leads us to ask this question. Who are you living for? What are you building your life on? The authority of Jesus at the end of this text is shocking to the hearers. And as we've read through the Sermon on the Mount, these commands that Jesus has given should be shocking to us. They should surprise us, confront us. And they should call us to a moment where we consider our lives, where we examine ourselves. Are we living for the kingdom and righteousness It's found in God. Are we living for our own kingdom? And so as we come to the Lord's table and as we respond this morning, this is an opportunity for us to do this. So I just want to give you an opportunity just where you are to bow your head, close your eyes, pray. And just give you a moment just to examine your own heart. Have you been pronouncing judgment? over someone, unwilling to forgive, 
unwilling to extend mercy and grace. Unwilling to forgive as God and Christ has forgiven you. If so, this is an opportunity to confess, to repent. Maybe even pursue if it's a brother or sister or husband and wife or child in this room or parent. Have you dealt with the log in your own eye? Or all do you see is the specks in others? Do you treasure the message of the kingdom, the measure, the message of the gospel? Is it priceless to you? Is it valuable to you? Does it hold a high place in your heart this morning? Or have you devalued it? Do you see God as a good father? Do you ask? Do you seek? Do you knock? Do you keep pursuing him that you might become more like him, that you might build your life on him? Or is God just the giver of gifts and you just need the gifts? It's the righteousness of Christ alive in you in such a way that you're beginning to do unto others as you would have them do to you. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters and ask this morning that 